0: So the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a prayer and Paul begins it by saying, for this reason, and what he means by that is he's just been explaining that all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, are being built up together to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, for that reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's a powerful prayer that Paul prayed for believers and it's so powerful it led him to this benediction of praise. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen this is the word of the lord Thanks be to God. that long ago day when the snake coaxed eve to eat the fruit and when eve gave the fruit to adam and he ate And when shame entered the world on the heels of sin, so much was lost that day. The garden itself was lost to us and intimacy with the one whose image we were meant to reflect. But also I think the ability to remember or imagine if you will, the ability to remember what it was we had lost. Once it was gone, our ability to even conceive the glory and the beauty and the wholeness of what we once had and might have continued to have, that was lost to us as well. But thankfully, there is one who can give and who can do immeasurably more than our hearts dare to ask or than our minds are able to imagine. So listen. In the days when Herod ruled in Galilee, the trade route from Damascus in the north to Egypt in the south passed through the region of Galilee along the northern coast of Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And built on that coast was the fishing town of Capernaum, Capernaum was a bustling town that was home to fishermen and merchants, synagogue leaders and Roman soldiers and at least one paraplegic who could only make his way through the town by the grace of friends willing to wheel him along in a cart or even carry him physically short distances. He had friends, so perhaps he wasn't as destitute in many, as many in his situation might have been, having to sit outside the synagogue or in the town center day after day begging. Maybe, maybe he had a job mending nets for a local fisherman. Maybe he was married to the best baker in town and together they sat in the marketplace day after day selling bread to travelers who were on their way down south. But still, even if all of that was true, even if he was better off than he might have been, he couldn't walk. He couldn't participate fully in the life of the community. He was dependent on the kindness and mercy of others. And that's a hard thing, even when the others are people who love you. How he must have wished his life could be different. I wonder if he ever prayed for healing. I wonder if he ever daydreamed about traveling to Jerusalem to that pool that sometimes was said to heal people if you could get in the water fast enough. I wonder if he ever grew weary of defending himself, insisting that his paralysis wasn't the result of some sin he committed. Capernaum was home to someone else too A teacher who was making a name for himself in that region His name was Jesus His family was from Nazareth But the story went that Jesus had appeared at the Jordan River Where John the baptizer was based And that Jesus had been baptized by John And then he left his family home in Nazareth And made his home in Capernaum And from there, he and his small band of followers traveled throughout Galilee to the surrounding towns and villages, preaching and healing. They'd been gone for a while, but news of Jesus's amazing deeds and his powerful words trickled back to Capernaum so that when he came back, the people wanted to see and hear him for themselves. And news spread through town that he had arrived and so the curious began crowding into the house where he was known to be staying. And among the people who heard the news were four friends on their way home for the day. And when they learned Jesus was in town, they turned and followed the crowd toward the house. And then one of them suddenly stopped. Wait, he said. And when the others turned to look at him, he spoke the name of a fifth friend, one who wouldn't be able to get to Jesus without help. And he said, what if all these things we're hearing about Jesus are true? What if? And his voice trailed off, but he didn't have to finish the sentence because the others knew what he was thinking. What if Jesus could heal their friend? What if the one thing their friend wanted more than anything in the world could be given to him? And so they turned away from the crowd, ran the other direction toward their friend's home. And when they got there, one of them grabbed the wheeled cart that was alongside the house and the others went inside the house and brought their friend out and situated him in the cart all the while he was calling, what are we doing, where are we going? And then they began running through the streets as fast as they could without tipping over the cart toward the house. But by the time they got there, they couldn't even get to the door for the crowd of people. They could hear a voice inside, commanding, captivating, but they couldn't get inside to reach the man who was speaking. We're not giving up. One of them said, this is his one chance. We're not going to miss it. And then another one shouted, here, over here. And he was already pulling the cart toward the exterior stairs that led up to the roof of the house. And so the four of them took their friend out of the cart and they carried him up the stairs to the roof of the house. And when they got there, they began pulling up, tearing off tiles and digging through the clay ceiling. And I just have to stop here for a minute and wonder, whose house was this? (laughs) Were the owners inside, down below, hearing the clatter of breaking tiles and seeing a hole appear in their ceiling? A big hole, one large enough to lower someone through, because that's what happened next. Once the hole was large enough, the friends used their cloaks to fashion ropes and then they lowered their friend through the hole down into the house. So he came to rest right at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looked at the man and then he looked up at the faces of his friends peering down through the hole. All of the faces were hopeful. Jesus knew why they had come. It was obvious their friend needed healing and they had overcome every obstacle to get him to the one who could provide it. Such determination, such faith. And so Jesus crouched down next to the man on the mat. Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? That's not what he'd been expecting. That's not what he came here for. That isn't what he wanted. And I wonder, was he disappointed, heartbroken even? Or was he angry? Or did he understand the gift that he'd been given? Did he understand those four words, your sins are forgiven? spoken to him by the word, did he understand they were immeasurably more than all he could ask for or even imagine asking for? Because here's the part of the story I haven't told you. Thousands of years before any of this, God met Abraham under the stars and made a covenant with him choosing Abraham's family to join him on a quest to redeem the world from sin and evil. And the covenant required Abraham's family, God's people, to be holy, set apart, completely given over to trusting God so that they could be a light to the rest of the world. But they couldn't do it. And honestly, wasn't that the point of the whole venture anyway? God needed to redeem the people because they couldn't do it themselves. They lived in the shadow of sin with God's law as their guide through the wilderness of their relationships with one another and with him. And one day a year, one day a year, the day of atonement, The slate was wiped clean. Their sin atoned for by the blood of a bull and two goats. And then the very next day, the transgressions began piling up again. The Jewish people couldn't imagine forgiveness apart from the day of atonement. That wasn't how they understood it. They certainly couldn't imagine lying in bed at night, reviewing their day, recalling their sins, and simply asking God to forgive them. Never mind having forgiveness just be announced as a reality. And yet, that day in Capernaum, in the house with a hole in its roof, on some random day in the middle of the year, that is what just happened. This teacher, Jesus, simply declared a man's sin forgiven. From anybody else's lips, it would have been blasphemy. So did he get it? The paralyzed man, did he understand that he was in that moment with Jesus, not in a house with a hole in the roof, but in the presence of the kingdom of God and that he had regained the garden did he get it do we the religious leaders certainly didn't you see among the crowd that day in the house were some teachers of the law sitting close enough to where jesus was that they could hear and see everything that happened and when they heard jesus say those four words your sins are forgiven they also thought wait what who does this guy think he is? They thought to themselves immediately. Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Interestingly, none of them dared to voice this out loud. And I don't know, maybe they were just biding their time, waiting to see what would happen next. But that didn't matter because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Just like he'd known the heart's desire of the man at his feet, And so he turned to the leaders and he said, why are you thinking like that? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? The answer in case you're confused or just not very good at logic problems is neither is easier. Both are impossible unless of course you are God. And just to be clear on that point, Jesus said, so you will know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turned to the paralyzed man and said, get up, take your mat, go home. It was so often like that with Jesus, no drama, no show. He didn't even touch the man. He just said, get up, go home. And I don't know whether the man felt wholeness return to his body or if Jesus's presence was just so commandingly persuasive that he stood up without and obeyed without thought. But whatever it was, he stood up. And as the crowd watched in amazement, whispering, we've never seen anything like this, he gathered up his mat and he walked through the parting crowd to the door. And his friends up there on the roof, they must have been cheering. They probably ran back down the outside stairs and pushed their way to the door to greet him as he walked out of the house, whole in more ways than one, in all the ways, body and spirit and we don't know what happened next the story ends there or does it there are so many questions left unanswered I mean surely he accepted the gift of healing how could he not but what about that immeasurably more gift of forgiveness what was his response to that Did he wake up the next morning and the morning after that and the one after that thanking God for the weight being lifted off his soul? Did he allow the gift of forgiveness to transform his life? Or did he go back to whatever life he had before, now able to walk but otherwise unaffected or worse, Did he think that because he'd been forgiven, he didn't have to change his attitudes or his behaviors? How many questions do you want? I have more. The curious among us have a list, the things I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven list and questions like these are on that list, but they don't have to be. And do you know why? Because all we have to do is look at our own lives. Our lives answer those questions. These stories from scripture are our stories, not because we possess the book and the stories belong to us, but because the stories are about us. We are the people in the stories. Why do you think these people never have names in the Bible stories? Put your own name in there. Think about the story this way. What if the story was about a woman staring at an empty bank account? What if it was the story of a grandfather facing the end of life in a haze of memory loss and confusion? Or a story about the adult children caring for him? What if it was about a single parent or someone who wasn't a single parent but felt like? a single parent or a person coping with failure at work or cancer or disappointment in their relationship? What if it was a story about you and your impossible situation? What if it was a story about you and you came to Jesus with the crumpled mess of your own attempts at self-help? What if you came to Jesus and heard five words, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. How would you respond? Would you understand the gift you had been given? Would you know that forgiveness is immeasurably more than anything you were asking for, worth immeasurably more than anything you could imagine asking for? Would you know that you had been restored to the garden, invited back into intimacy with the one in whose image you were created and intended to reflect? And if you knew that, what would you do? Would you accept the gift and allow it to transform your life regardless of your circumstances? Would you accept forgiveness but remain unchanged by it? Kind of like a bride who's happy to receive your wedding gift of two place settings but never sends a thank you card or even invites you over for dinner. Or would you reject the gift altogether as not what I came here for. How would you respond? I do wonder though about that paralyzed man and what he thought when news came to Capernaum one day that Jesus had been crucified. I wonder if he began to truly understand then that though forgiveness had been offered to him freely, it wasn't without cost. We are about to gather at Christ's table to remember that cost in his body and blood, but also to celebrate the immeasurable gift of forgiveness that his death holds out to us. So to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us,